Okay, our first message will be a split sermon, sermon brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Cleansing the House of God. Good afternoon. It's good to see everyone here. Uh, well, the title of my message, as was just brought to you by uh, Art, was is Cleansing the House of God. And I have to admit that I've given a message similar to this in the past, about four years ago. And I'll get into kind of explain what how I stumbled upon this message today, but just to kind of open us up, I just want to kind of talk about something I was thinking about whenever I was coming up with this message and developing it. And A few weeks ago, me and Katie, we celebrated Asher's first birthday, and we had a small little get-together at our house, and of course, us being just like most other humans, one of the things you do when you invite people into your personal quarters, I guess you would say, is you try to put on a front like, you know, everything's perfect, your house is so clean, you clean up, you put everything away, you might have a few closets that are just things are thrown in, you might keep the garage closed because you didn't have time to, to get to that, because you want people to come into your house or you want people to... I guess you would say, encounter you where you really look like you have everything together. You're clean. You know, you're organized. You, you know, there's, there's you know, no imperfections because we don't want to be someone or people that look like don't take care of ourselves, that uh, are unorganized, that uh, don't have an understanding of, of keeping up with things. And we do this with all kinds of things in our life. It's not just about, you know, when you invite people over. It can be you know, whether, you know, it could be just like a, an event, like a social gathering. You know, you, you hear people talk about how they have a wedding to go to or something. And, you know, you know maybe they're going to see some people they had not seen in a while. And they're like, yeah, you know, maybe I need to lose 10 pounds or something. You know, I don't want to go in there looking like, you know, I've let myself go. And that's just, I don't know if it's an instinctive human thing or if it's more of a social, cultural, we've been conditioned to do that. We always want to make sure that, you know, we don't want to be embarrassed or have people feel like, you know, maybe... You know, we're not all on top of our game, I guess you would say. But it's just part of, you know, who we are as people, especially just living in this social environment that we do where it's so important what people think. I mean, we're always, you know, I mean, we can be obsessed sometimes of our, you know, external look. You know, you might be clean for, you know, a three-hour period, but, you know, the rest of the weeks you might, your house might be, you know, completely out of order. But it doesn't matter because they don't know that. And any time someone starts getting kind of close, whether it be like, you know, inviting people into your home or you start getting to know people, you're almost kind of guarded. You don't want them to think, you know, bad of you. You don't want them to think that you're unclean. And I mean that physically and metaphorically in a lot of other ways. You know, unclean and, and just not having things together. You know, not being on top of things. And I was thinking about this and I was just thinking about how it's just so interesting that human characteristic of us, you know, that, you know, wanting to make sure that everything is right in order, especially whenever it has to do with people that might be viewing it from the outside. You know, I was thinking about this because in some ways, this can be a good thing and this can be a bad thing. 
You know, it, it can be a good thing if we do it in, in a balanced way, whenever we have our priorities correct. You know, if we, if we are prioritizing our life and, and keeping things in order in an appropriate manner, then it can be a very good thing because it can help us make sure that we are keeping our life straight and that we are taking care and being good stewards, whether it be our bodies or whether it be, uh, you know, at work or in our family. And I was just thinking about things, things that we really, really, really <laughs> prize in life, things that are extremely important to us. We take care of them, right? You know, I know a guy, he's a friend of mine, who is so obsessed with his car, literally, that he keeps it in a garage with air conditioning and heat at the perfect, perfect temperature. And in fact, if it's raining outside, there's no way that car is getting out. And if it snows, he's not driving it for two weeks to wait for all the sand and all the salt to kind of go to the sides of the roads because it can start wearing and deteriorating the paint. I was just thinking about, you know, what are some of the things that are really important to us? And just, just to get us personally thinking about that, things that we really take care of. It can be physical things. It can be, uh, you know, our children. It can be, you know, things that aren't even tangible, but things that we, you know, we make sure that we take care of because they're very important to us. And at the same time, I was thinking about this. And one of the things that got me thinking about this was whenever I was reading this week, yesterday actually, of John chapter 2, when Jesus encountered some people and saw that they weren't keeping a clean house. Let's go to John the second chapter. As today marks a Sabbath where we only have so few of them, I guess you say so many of them, until we are going to be once again in the Holy Day season. And that Passover is kind of approaching, and sometimes it's easy to, you know, you know, the week before you start thinking about this, and things that you needed to be really, you know, months in advance coming up to that Passover season, really thinking about some of these things and reflecting upon them and helping them build on your relationship with God and, and, and try to identify some of the things that you can identify to help you as we prepare for that season. John, the second chapter, just to give you a little bit of a background, Jesus is, is getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And actually what we're going to look at, we're going to see he's in Jerusalem for the purpose of the Passover. So we're going to read in chapter 2, verse 12. That's where we're going to pick it up. We're going to pick it up where it says, excuse me, Verse 13, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers, doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And when his disciples, then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to, them, said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? 
But he was speaking of the temple of his body, and therefore when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. There are several things that we can observe from this. And we're not going to do an all-out you know, you know, exposition, ex everything that is in here, but there's a couple things I want us to bring our attention to. First of all, the time of year. And I've already kind of mentioned that, that this was the time of the Passover season. And this is why Jesus was in Jerusalem. It was one of the three feasts in which people were required to pilgrimage there to Jerusalem to keep one of God's feasts. And every devout Jew that was able to come to Jerusalem would be there during this time of the Passover season. But the second thing we can observe is what Jesus found when he came there. It says that he found those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now we can see a little bit about what was going on there, maybe a little bit why Jesus was upset. People are there doing business, things that are obviously not appropriate activity for the temple. But to understand this a little further, there's some background information that we kind of need to just peek our head out and just understand that obviously we understand the concept of keeping the holy days and keeping the Passover. But specifically, they did keep the Passover a little different than we did. We don't pilgrimage, you know, thousands of miles to keep the Passover. We don't go to Jerusalem. Some of us might. We might have that opportunity. But we are not required to go to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Passover. And these Passover worshipers that were from all over the known world, all through Israel, all throughout the Roman Empire, and even ex extended beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire. All of them, as we would see in, a little later in Acts, the second chapter, when Pentecost came and, and the Holy Spirit was given, and it was said that there was people from all different tongues that came to Jerusalem to observe that Pentecost. We can see that there's people traveling long distances, and there's a little bit to this that doesn't just quite meet the eye. In fact, when you have all these people coming from out of town, it was actually common for them not to bring with them sacrificial animals because it was too risky. They could die on the way. They could get injured. This was a pretty tough terrain for a lot of people to travel. And sometimes it would take them a long time to get there. So they would be forced to purchase their sacrificial animals once they got into Jerusalem. And when they did this, there were opportunistic people waiting for them. People that knew that they would have to buy a sacrificial animal once they got there because if they didn't, they couldn't keep the Passover. And some of the things we know from background information and other sources that many times at this point, that there was people that took advantage of such people that had to purchase their animal there in Jerusalem. Charging them prices that were unjust and exploiting them, quite literally, merchandising the people. The second thing we see is we see money changers. And this is something else that became an opportunity for people to make money. You see, just like people had to come from out of town, many people had to come from other parts of the world with currency that was not acceptable to pay the temple tax that was required at Passover. 
You see, the currency of the day, a lot of it had inscriptions on them. You know, maybe a, you know, a Caesar or, or someone else's face. And the Jews of the day, they deemed these coins and this, this currency to be idolatrous and not appropriate to pay the temple tax with. So there was a necessity to have money exchangers so people could come in with their foreign currency, whether it be Roman currency or any other kind of currency that might breach uh, the requirements uh, to pay the temple tax, and they would exchange their money for Jewish or what they called Tyrian coinage. Coinage that was acceptable, didn't have that idolatrous inscription on it, and when they did this, they would charge an interest fee, a small interest fee, but when you have thousands and possibly millions of people participating in this exchange, it could become a large profit. So this is what was going on. Both the animal merchants and the money changers were profiting off and taking advantage of these travelers. And in turn, this is what infuriated Jesus. This is what prompted Jesus to say not to make his father's house a house of merchandise. Last time I spoke kind of over this passage, and since then I was talking with some people, and I think Mr. Gregory had mentioned that, in fact, if you were a Jewish disciple of Jesus in those days, and you knew the, the, the scriptures, you would probably be reminded to the millennial prophecy in Zechariah, the 14th chapter, the last verse that said, and in those days, in the very end, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. And it's interesting, you do some language studies on that word, and that word Canaanite became a synonym for a merchandiser, someone who profited off the things of God. And we see this happening right here in front of Jesus' face. In the temple of God, in the house of God, in the pinnacle of what the Jews thought was the most holiest place and city on the entire earth, Canaanites were present. Merchandisers. It doesn't just mean merchandisers, but unclean people. People with a personal intent, not on the holiness and righteousness of God that the temple would obviously require and that the Old Testament shows all the pains that God went to to show the Levitical priesthood how to do things so precise because they were dealing with the holy God merchandisers in the house of the Lord and the disciples must have thought that this right here this right here must have reminded them of that messianic millennial I guess you would say prophecy that will come to pass at some point because we know it has not to this day where merchandisers, where Canaanites will no longer be in the house of the Lord and Jesus' response to this was to drive these merchants out and when he did this, he says, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Literally, the sanctuary that was the pinnacle of the Jewish religion had become a place of business. And instead of a house of worship for the Passover season and a house of devotion, it had become a house of profit. And we can see many comparisons all throughout history throughout the you know Jesus's day through the middle ages when the Roman popes would live these lavish lives 
when European peasants who would be paying taxes to fund these lavish popes' lives would be starving to death. We can see that in our present day in the 21st century. It's February the 23rd right now. And February the 23rd means that in the next few weeks, and probably already now, you're going to see merchants exploit the Christian holiday, or the so-called Christian holiday of what we know as Easter. We see it with Christmas. Religion has become something that is so easy to use as a way to merchandise. People that are non-religious do it, and people even that are supposedly religious do it. We can think about, you know, not just the business people that exploit uh, so-called Christian holidays as Christmas or Easter or, or Valentine's Day or, or Halloween, but we can look at what is called the health and wealth gospel. You know, the gospel where they don't just, they just pretty much directly do it themselves, where they tell you that if you give us money, you will be blessed and you'll be healthy. Where they place gifts above giver. And we can see this in our day. And we can see that Jesus came to a house that wasn't clean. Let's go to Exodus, the 19th chapter. Exodus, the 19th chapter. Because I think we can kind of just go back and just do a quick review on ancient Israel and how God commissioned them to be a holy nation. Exodus, the 19th chapter. Just a few verses. Right after Moses, led by God, brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he says this to Moses. In verse 3 of chapter 19 of Exodus, it says... And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And this had just taken place, the deliverance of this enslaved nation from a powerful, powerful world power of ancient Egypt. Verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And right here we see that God mentions to Moses the privilege of Israel. What God had done for Israel and why He did it. Israel was a chosen people that God chose to place His name. God chose to place His name among the ancient Israelites. And for the purpose for His name to be known to the entire world through Israel. God tells us three things that Israel was to be to God. Number one, and this was that they abided in His covenant. That they would be, number one, a special treasure to God. They had a special relationship with God. They were the only people on earth that was in covenant with God. This did not mean that people could not come into Israel and be a part of that covenant nation. But it meant that God had chose this nation through Abraham because of the promises given to him. These people to have that special relationship with God. Number two, he chose them to be a kingdom of priests, a nation where God dwelled among them 
in something we call a tabernacle. The third thing he said is that they would be a holy nation. A nation that would be set apart for the purpose of God's divine purposes. And a nation that was supposed to represent him on this earth. And we know how this took place. We know the stories that God designed and gave instructions for how he would dwell with them. Through the tabernacle and the, the, all the meticulous instructions that were to be kept and that were to be honored. And, and how he set apart a, a group of people among these Israelites called the Levites. And they would be in charge of setting up and instituting the tabernacle sacrifices. And this would be for Israel the dwelling place where God would dwell among his people. And I think that we can see that there's an analogy for me and you today between ancient Israel and the church. I mean, isn't that what we are? We're going to see that there's some wordings that Peter used that shows us as the church, the new spiritual Israel. Not replacing physical Israel and the promises that God still has for them, but giving us the analogy of who we are today and how God's spiritual tabernacle and temple works. Let's go to 1 Peter, the second chapter. 1 Peter, the second chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. Verse 4 of 1 Peter 2 says, Coming to Him, that's Jesus, as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God, and precious you also as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And it's irrefutable that Peter is kind of drawing on the analogy of what we just read in Exodus, the 19th chapter. That the church is kind of, you know, taken upon that spiritual role of Israel. The idea of coming to Christ and being in the presence of Christ is somewhat related to that verse, that, that, those words of Jesus himself in John the 15th chapter when Jesus talked about abiding in the true vine. Abiding in the vine, which is Christ. And here we see that the presence of God is literally, and we know this from other scriptures, literally dwelling in each and one of us through God's Spirit. God's Spirit dwells in us as opposed to us having to go to a physical tabernacle. His tabernacle now is living inside our body. We are the tabernacle, both as individuals as well as a collective whole in the body of Christ. Let's read on there in 1 Peter. Verse 7 says, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We saw this played out in Jesus' life and in the life of the early church. Majority, the overwhelming majority, rejected Christ as being the Savior. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, 
but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And Peter here is continuing this paradox that he's drawing on of how Christ is both the chief cornerstone, but interesting, he's also the rock of stumbling. He stumbled, people stumble over the truth of God through Christ. And Exodus 19 now is being applied to the church in a spiritual sense. Not replacing ancient Israel that still has a part of God's plan to be fulfilled. But showing us this new relationship that's analogous to the relationship. And just think about that. Were we not before we were in Christ without mercy and alienated just like ancient Israel was in Egypt? Before God came in and brought physical salvation to Israel, they were in the same spot that we were spiritually before Jesus Christ. He says that we are a chosen nation. And we have obtained those promises through Christ. Those promises given to Abraham. That grafted into that, that seed of Christ. We the church are now that royal priesthood. And as it says in that millennial kingdom, that we will be kings and priests with Christ. And collectively, both as individuals, but also collectively, we are a part of that spiritual house, that temple, as a part of that body of Christ, as members of Christ's body. And it's interesting that Peter gives us three things whenever he was speaking here. First, he says that we, as this new chosen generation, this new royal priesthood, we are to proclaim His praises. And this is the same thing. This is none other than we are to proclaim the goodness of the gospel of the kingdom of God. That gospel message that Jesus proclaimed. God's mercy, God's greatness, God's salvation process. We are also, the second thing Peter says, is that we, writing about this new priesthood, we are to abstain from fleshly lust that says wars against the soul. And it's interesting. We can look back at what Jesus faced when he entered into that house of God. We can see that they weren't abstaining from fleshly lusts. Their fleshly lust was manifesting itself through greed and selfish desire for monetary gain at the exploitation of others. But these fleshly lusts can manifest themselves in many ways. Not just with money, not just with greed, with power, with sex, with all kinds of things. These things can manifest themselves. And it's interesting to note that that Greek word that's translated into the English as war actually brings out the idea of a military campaign. A military campaign like the fleshly carnal lust is almost likened to an army regime that's basically trying to besiege our spiritual life and hinder us and take away our effectiveness to carry out God's purposes. And we know that that old man always is trying to, you know, peek its, its head again, that old man or woman 
We understand this, and it's, it's a war. It's not just a war against the devil. It's not just a war against our culture and our world and the things that are opposed to God in this life. It's also a war against that fleshly lust, that, that old man, that carnality that we have within us. And the third thing that he says is that we are to present ourselves, and this is specifically talking about actions, that we are to present ourselves with honorable conduct. The King James actually says, keeping our conversation honest, but the Greek literally means our behavior. It brings out that outward expression that should manifest itself that testifies to our internal transformation. Our internal transformation. Why? Because when we are walking and we are representing Christ on this earth, we are also witnessing to people with our actions and our conduct. Do we have conduct? Do we have actions? Do we have honest and conversation that is befitting as a representative of Jesus Christ? Would Gentiles or unbelievers today, we could say, would they look at our actions, at our lifestyles? I have to ask myself this because I think that I fail sometimes in this manner. And I think all of us would admit this. But do those actions, those words that we speak, those attitudes, do they reflect the godly character of Jesus Christ? Are they befitting? Are they something that will glorify Christ, that will glorify God, and show God's glory to people who might be on the outside looking in? In other words, is that house, that house that we have and we live in, that the Holy Spirit lives in the way in which God lives in us. Is that house clean? Is all the different faculties going on in that house clean? All the different activities that are being operated out? That's the question, especially leading up to the Passover season that we have to answer. So I have two practical applications. And just every time I read this passage, it seems like, and I do a study on it, there's something I've kind of missed. I think all of us are in that situation. We... You know, we, we, we don't learn it all at one time. Sometimes we have to chew on things. And sometimes we'll even, you know, some of us speakers will even talk. And, you know, we'll start on a message and then we'll just have to, you know, at the last minute or midweek, we'll have to put it up and say, no, this isn't developed yet. It's not, it hasn't matured yet. You know, it, it, we're not ready to, I guess, receive all the things that are in there. It's just we have a feeling that it's not the right time. And you put it on the shelf. And time goes by, and it's interesting how God will work on our lives to inspire us to bring the messages appropriate to the right specific time. But the two applications, number one, real simple. We must keep the temple clean. We must purge out that unrighteousness, the ungodliness in our lives that make it worthy, a worthy dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. As we've heard before, we know that the, the scriptures tells us that the body is the temple of God. Our life, you know, we live in this body and that spirit dwells within us now. And we have the God's presence with us. We don't have to physically go. And it talks about, like Christ said, that there will be a time where people won't go up to Jerusalem. We don't have to, but they'll worship God in spirit and in truth. Because God will dwell within men and women. We have to ask ourselves, does our attitude or conduct reflect a continual striving towards growing in Christ? Are we seeking first God's kingdom over our own desires? Or, interestingly, going back to what Jesus encountered, does any part of our temple show a contradiction 
in God's house. Because it was with what Jesus encountered. I mean, if you think about it, this was what was going on. The Jews of Jesus' day, these money exchangers, were almost putting up a front as if this was something holy they were doing. I mean, think about it. Well, you know, we're... We're just trying to maintain a standard of holiness because we cannot have these temple, this temple tax being paid with these coins because they're idolatrous. So on the outside, it kind of looked like they were just trying to maintain a standard of holiness, something righteous. But on the inside, and as time went on, it became a method to exploit people. So it was an inward unrighteousness. And we have to ask ourselves, is there anything that we kind of you know, in our lives, and it doesn't have to be, obviously, it's not going to be like this, but just things we can identify, that where we almost, it seems like on the outside, have like this image of godliness, but on the inside, our intent and the genuineness, really it's not quite what the outside says. In fact, it's greedy or selfish or more focused on wants and, 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 and what we desire instead of on the things of of God. And, and we can, you know, I don't have any specific examples for this, but many of us, I think, can dig deep into the sanctuary of God's temple in our bodies, our heart, and, and try to pull out and identify any of those areas. The second thing I have is that we must use the temple of ourselves as our Reasonable service to God, as Romans, the 12th chapter, says. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We've read this passage before. Just thinking back about what the temple is now. We know collectively and as individuals what the temple is. And God's dwelling place. But Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So as we go and come to this new Passover season, that's such a wonderful time and such a blessing that God has put markers for us to identify where we are in His plan and identify and keep us on track. And, and, you know, any time we want to, like, start napping, it's just like Jesus and, and, and God the Father has put a plan together. It's like an automatic nudge that just kind of wakes us up to realize that, you know, that, that we're still on our journey. We're still in our race. We're still in this marathon. And we have to ask ourselves as we move towards that Passover season, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, talking about examining ourselves because it's not too early to examine ourselves yet. As we move towards that holy renewing of that covenant, we have to ask ourselves, what would it be like if Jesus wanted to come to our temple or his temple? You know, metaphorically, he knows everything we do. But if Jesus showed up, like he showed up in the temple in, in, in the days in which he walked physically as a human on this earth, would he be angry? Would he find any Canaanites among us? Is there any Canaanite-like activities going on in our life? Is there anything, you know, and remember Canaanite is a merchandiser, but it also can be used as an unclean person. Is there any uncleanness that we need to clean up? Is there any things that, you know, kind of talking about, you know, that first analogy that I gave at the very beginning of the message was, was about how, like, you know, you, 
sometimes as people, you know, you invite people over, and sometimes when you clean up, you kind of try to deceive them a little bit. Yeah, you might clean the kitchen up, you might clean the living room up, but the closet, those inward places where people don't go to as often, you might not have worked as hard on those. You might have kind of left those a little undone. What the closets of our life, the cupboards of our life, the little nook areas that we sometimes forget about. Because God wants us to strive for perfection because he's a perfect God. Not to be like what Jesus encountered, where people just accepted, well, yeah, we're into holiness and into you know, Judaism as it had become, a man's religion. But it's okay if we profit a little bit on the side at the exploitation of others. We have to ask ourselves this. Would Jesus be angry? Would he make a whip of cords and drive out the Canaanites in us? Is the house of God clean? We have to ask ourselves this and reflect upon this in our studies and our prayer as we move forward to another Passover season.